Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care. I'm your host Tiffany, and I started this podcast because I realized that most people know how to reduce their carbon footprints, but few know how to directly help protect nature and biodiversity. So together we'll explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can take better care of Mother Earth in our everyday lives. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with Nicola Brown, an impact producer and filmmaker specializing in natural history and conservation. Her most recent work, the digital campaign Our Frozen Planet, has been published over the past few months on the BBC Earth channels alongside the release of Frozen Planet 2. The series explores how climate change is impacting communities and species living in the frozen parts of our planet, with the vision to bring people together and drive positive change. She also led Our Blue Planet, another BBC Earth digital impact campaign that aimed to get people talking about the ocean. I met Nicola at the same time I met Annie Moyer, who you might remember from episode 2 on noise pollution in the oceans. Nicola has been working as a producer for almost a decade and has so much knowledge to share. So I asked questions covering various aspects of her work, and while we mainly focused on her latest series Our Frozen Planet, Nicola also shared a ton of super practical advice on how you can take action. So make sure to listen until the end and check out the show notes for all her recommendations. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation, please share this episode around you if you did. And also don't forget to check out hashtag OurFrozenPlanet on social media or find the content through the BBC Earth channels directly. And if you ever have any thoughts or suggestions, please feel free to uh, direct message me as well on Instagram at WhyWeCarePodcast. Thank you so much for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Nicola. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Could you start by... Oh, sorry, I talked over you. (laughs) That's okay. No problem. I never know if I need to live a little <laughs> moment or not. Um, but could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? Sure thing. So thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so I work as an impact producer and I guess I specialize in digital storytelling um, in the wildlife and environmental space. So everything that I produce is short form for platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Uh, YouTube, Facebook. And for me personally, I really enjoy finding ways to tell stories in these new formats, because I feel like if we can reach new audiences with stories about the environment, about climate change, about the biodiversity crisis, then there's some really exciting potential for change. Um, And based on projects I've worked on, you know, I think if more people cared about our planet, then I think more positive change could happen. Um, And I think social media is an exciting space to work in because it is this evolving landscape. And, you know, there's always a new way to tell a story and the potential to reach audiences in a way that television documentaries sometimes can't. So, yeah, that's where that's kind of the space I work in. Um, I'm freelance, but at the moment I'm working with the BBC's Natural History Unit. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, yeah, super, super impressive uh, career. Um, and well, I think we'll come back to the um, what you said about um, helping people change their behavior or realizing that they care and then um, how um, how that can have such a massive impact. Um, but first, what I wanted to ask you is, um, I know you worked on Our Blue Planet, which was um, a very successful digital campaign that got people talking about oceans on social media alongside the release of Blue Planet 2, right? Yeah. Um, so could you tell us um, what that was like and then also what you learned along the way? Thank you for the kind words. So Our Blue Planet, yeah, it was this BBC project in partnership with Ocean X Media. And it was, I guess, really the first impact campaign that the BBC Natural History Unit did um, around a landmark television series. And it really was an amazing project to be part of. And I definitely learned a lot from it. I guess a good place to start is maybe giving you an overview of what the project uh, was. So we were a small team. 
we made over 700 pieces of content in two years for social media platforms it was a very busy two years (laughs) Um, I can imagine yeah but we made it through (laughs) and um (laughs) The idea really was to tell stories around the television series and, you know, look at all the issues that the television series looked at, but covering them with a with a digital storytelling lens. And what do I mean by that? I guess I mean, you know, stories on television are amazing, but, you know, they're told in a very different way. They're told for an audience that is invested to sit down for an hour and watch a documentary on television, whereas with social media, we're having to think very differently. You know, sometimes people might be scrolling through their social feed on their bus to work we might have two minutes to grab their attention or like you look at YouTube people are willing to kind of sit down for something longer but in our world that's maybe you know 10-15 minutes rather than an hour so that was the idea take all of those big kind of ocean issues and think about how might we tell those stories across social media so I think a, a nice example of that is it was around the time that Facebook Live launched and we came up with this idea that we called Turtles Hatching Live. So mm-hmm. we went and partnered with this amazing NGO in Cape Verde called Project Biodiversity. And they're this amazing group of volunteers who run turtle hatcheries um, because there's lots of human impact there. So there's a lot of light pollution, there's plastic pollution. Um, so, you know, the natural cycle of turtles uh, trying to, well, hatching and get into the to the ocean is disrupted because they either follow the light pollution or they get entangled in in plastic and in in that kind of material on the beach so the idea was they have these hatcheries which means they can um they can monitor the turtles and then help them get safely to the ocean right so what that meant for us as storytellers um with this facebook live function was we could rig the turtle nests in the hatchery so we would rig a couple of nests that the volunteers felt would hatch that night and then we would essentially invite the Facebook audience to wait with us for the turtles so for a long time it would be like sand cam you literally just have a patch of sand sometimes like (laughs) a couple of hours um but then what was amazing is when like the slightest kind of emergence of a turtle appeared everyone got so excited and it was this really magic moment you know we had people watching from all around the world a lot of people were parents with their children and everybody got to be part of this magic moment in nature. So the turtles would all erupt out. I think a lot of the audience called it like turtle Armageddon. They'd all appear. (laughs) And then the volunteers would count the turtles out and then we basically film them on the beach so the best solution we could have to be able to really put the audience right down there with the turtles was to attach a tiny camera to a broom pole and to then have that camera right next to the turtles and it was lovely because you know we were right there with them as they took their first steps into the ocean and what I loved about this is that it was a magic moment but at the same time we were still having a conversation in the Facebook comments with the audience about why that NGO exists because of the light pollution because of the plastic pollution so while people were like being entertained by the spectacle of nature we were still having a conversation about the issues I think social media we can find these kind of new avenues to tell stories and kind of reach people in different ways but at the same time you know we were amplifying the messages of Blue Planet 2 which of course touched on on plastics as well um so yeah I think our main learning from that project is that we realize that social media can be this really exciting space to create impact and change for the environment and um, also I think that people do care and are open to creating change in their own lives as well. Mm-hmm. Amazing well wow, thank you so much for sharing that that's such a beautiful story um, and yeah I, I, I think it's amazing what you said that you can 
use uh, technology and social media to bring people um, so much closer to nature. And we live in a world that feels so disconnected at times. I feel like, especially, you know, if you live in a big city, we feel so far from nature and we're in our world, in our like little digital spaces very often, most of the time, um, you know, you work online and you <laughs> watch TV shows at night and everything, but then using that to bring back that connection with nature, I think is, is really beautiful. And then you saw that what had an impact as well then on people's behavior, right? Which is so beautiful. Yeah, which is an amazing thing to be part of. And yeah, I mean, it's great that cities do have green spaces, but um, I think, you know, people having a connection to nature is really important, especially as we think about kind of trying to, tackle climate change and the biodiversity crisis mm -hmm. and that connection is really important mm -hmm. and I, I feel like it's also almost like you have green spaces so you can have that connection with nature even in cities but then what you were describing as the you know the turtles hatching that's something very specific that not a lot of people would be able to witness um so it's amazing that you can then use technology to make that available and to make more people understand what's happening in nature and everything yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's some exciting possibilities with technology for sure. Love that. Um, and I just would quickly um, ask a, a follow-up question on that, if that's okay, because I think a lot of people are pretty aware of um, the plastic pollution problem, but you mentioned as well light pollution. Would you be able to just quickly explain um, what that is? Yeah, sure. I guess, um, well, if you take turtles as an example, I mean, I'd say this as a non-scientist, but this is based on my understanding and experience, but turtles use the light to be able to get to the sea, right? Animals and, and nature wildly has rhythms and cycles that are in tune with like the natural cycles of our planet. So things like cities and bright lights can disrupt that because it obviously creates extra light. So I guess you could say light pollution is something that is interfering with the natural cycles of animals. Um, mm -hmm. kind of causing pollution in a different way to you know the traditional pollution that we all know does that answer mm -hmm. the question yes yeah I think that does and that's yeah I'm always kind of um, interested of hearing um, interested in hearing about these um, less known I guess yeah types of ways we're impacting nature so I think that that's good to know and then I imagine as an individual there's maybe not that much you can do but it's still a good thing to be aware and then uh, right you can just keep that in mind and then maybe at some point push for change um, on that front. Yeah, absolutely. Um, amazing, thank you for that. Um, another question I wanted to ask is that you're now working on another project called Our Frozen Planet, focusing mm -hmm. on, um, if I'm not mistaken, how climate change is impacting the communities and the species living in frozen parts of the globe. Could you share more about this and maybe also your favorite story from this new campaign? Yeah, sure. So yeah, as you said, um, the project's called Our Frozen Planet. It's another BBC impact campaign. Uh, this one around the television series Frozen Planet 2. I should say it's in um, collaboration with Moondance Foundation as well. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a project that's very much focusing on climate change stories, um, which was the biggest theme to come out of the television series. But again, thinking about how can we utilize social media to tell those stories in a slightly different way. I should do a little shout out to the team who are, we're a really small team, but a really mighty team uh we've mm -hmm. all been working really hard over the past six months on this project i think we all feel really kind of proud of 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 the stories that we've been able to um 
include within it. And it's hard to pick a favorite story. I think it's actually taught me a lot. And that's one thing I do love about working in the space is that I'm always learning. Um, so my two kind of editorial pillars that I've led on have been the stories about indigenous communities and then this accelerating change editorial. And that's all about hope, optimism and solutions. So kind of showcasing inspiring people doing innovative things to try and um, adapt or find ways to combat climate change. And being able to tell stories with Indigenous communities has taught me a lot, actually, when you look at how Indigenous communities have lived so in tune with nature for generations, you know, they have incredible insights into the rhythms of nature, and really are seeing the effects of change firsthand, you know, permafrost is disappearing, people are noticing differences in sea ice, it's either not there, or it's appearing at a different time, species are disappearing, or their behaviors are changing. So we made a film collaborated with this amazing initiative called Smart Ice. Uh, they're based in Northern Canada and they're essentially working with indigenous knowledge and technology to adapt to climate change. So it's the idea that, you know, indigenous communities have this incredible knowledge of of the landscape there, but the sea ice in reality just isn't safe to travel on anymore. So this app called Smart Ice essentially allows them to input on kind of the state of the ice. And that information is then shared with other indigenous communities across that part of Canada so that it's kind of taking their insight, but making it more accessible so that it's safer to travel. And I think that's the reality of, of where we are. You know, we are experiencing climate change. Indigenous communities are experiencing that firsthand. So we've got to kind of pivot and adapt and find ways to be able to live in a world that is changing and has changed in certain parts. And actually on this project, I came across the phrase climate changed for the first time, which kind of struck a chord with me, you know, mm. things, things have, have already changed in certain parts of the world. Um, so it's hard to pick a story because there's been so many incredible ones, but I think when you look at stories like Smart Ice, it's inspiring to see that, people are finding these solutions and adapting to the world that we live in at the moment does that answer mm -hmm. your question yeah it does <laughs> thank you yeah thank you so much for for sharing that it's a beautiful story and I'd never heard um the the phrase climate change before but you're right that it's a very powerful one and I think um yeah it actually makes a lot of sense and we're going to have to adapt to this new climate because most likely not going to be able to reverse it completely. Um, so thank you for sharing that. For uh, people listening, can they, can you maybe uh, tell them where they can find all these stories? What's the best way of, um, to, to watch them? Thanks for asking that. So if you search the hashtag Our Frozen Planet on social media, the films will come up. Um, but they're all on the BBC Earth social channels. So the longer films are on YouTube and Facebook. And then we've created some stories uh, that are much more short form for Instagram and TikTok. So yeah, either go and find BBC Earth or search the hashtag. Okay, amazing. That's uh, super easy to find. And I'll also um, include the link in the show notes for people who just want Thank to find you. it even more easily. Amazing. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you as well. Um, and another question I had actually um, on the back of that is that um, I, I, I did some research and I kind of already had heard about this as well, but um, Blue Planet 2 um, and I think our Blue Planet uh, campaign as well were credited with creating a Blue Planet effect where people reduce their plastic consumption after having seen the film and I guess also the kind of um, the pieces of content around it. 
Um, so could you share maybe your experience of this, having work on it uh, directly, and then also in an ideal world, what you hope will happen as a frozen planet effect? So if the executive producer of Blue Planet 2, James Honeybourne, was here, he's someone I've worked with a lot, he would say it was amazing to see people kind of talk and act on the plastics problem in connection to Blue Planet 2 and to our Blue Planet. That It was really honestly incredible. But, you know, a lot of people, a lot of nonprofits and organisations had already been working in that space for a long time before the series came along. And I think what the series did, and I think this is what James would say, is that it shone a really bright spotlight on the problem. And then with the impact campaign, we tried to shine a bright light on some of the solutions and kind of to showcase some of that work being done by other people. And I think that's the power of media sometimes. It can create these moments that bring people together. I've got some stats here, actually, that I think are quite interesting and connect to Blue Planet 2 and plastics. So, you know, 78% of people in the UK said that they cared more about conservation after watching Blue Planet 2. Searches for plastic recycling increased by 55% online. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Organizations like WWF saw more traffic to their websites at the time. And then, you know, you've got amazing organizations like Marine Conservation Society saw more people signing up for beach cleans. And it feels like it really brought kind of people working in that space together you know and that that was amazing and I think for me personally my takeaway was it was incredible that a lot of my friends that aren't in kind of the environmental space would talk to me about plastics would talk to me about reducing their own plastic footprint and actually on the campaign itself on our blue planet my favorite takeaway was the you know tweets and messages that we got from parents and teachers and it would be these photos of kids in classrooms coming up with solutions to, you know, recycling, reusing plastic. And I always remember this amazing photograph of a letter written by like a six or seven year old to McDonald's about banning plastic straws. <laughs> and it's, you know, these things are the things that motivate me to do my job. And I think when we think about our frozen planet, I think what's challenging in terms of climate change, you know, plastics are quite tangible. People can see a bottle on a beach or a straw up a turtle's nose and they can equate their own behavior to that impact right whereas climate change it's much more challenging it can feel scary or it can feel I think hard for people to relate to or it can feel like a distant future problem and so when it comes to storytelling in that space and kind of driving change I think it is a lot more tricky and I think what's interesting working as an impact producer and working in this space is you know especially with BBC projects we're not our stories obviously have to adhere to really kind of strict editorial policy and we're not directly talking about like change at a policy level or anything like that but it's really interesting to see how people respond to the stories that we're telling and then run with that. So, you know, it's been amazing to see that happen around Plastics and Blue Planet 2 with climate change. I mean, what I hope is that we, we're we hopefully bridging a gap in terms of making climate change that little bit more tangible, I guess, perhaps. There's a really amazing saying from a nonprofit called Arctic Base Camp that's mm -hmm. um, 
what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. And that's something that we've really tried to drive through with this campaign. You know, everything is connected. And we really wanted to acknowledge with our frozen planet that everybody has a different way into climate change. You know, in the UK, I think we're very privileged that we're currently not experiencing kind of some of the effects that other countries are. I think we are starting to see it more and more now. And our our frozen planet is a global campaign. So we really wanted to think about the audience journey beyond our stories. And at the end of each film, we've included a a reflect share act kind of board we've called it so that the idea being that you know some people this might just be an opportunity to reflect on where we are in the world right now for others it might be an opportunity to share this story if you feel empowered to kind of share it with your circles or you know if you you are really motivated to go and change something so like with plastics the beach clean side of it like encouraging people to think about what they can actually do to contribute and make a difference so yeah, it's been a tricky balance because we wanted to land the urgency, but we didn't want to leave people feeling helpless. We wanted to give people like a onward journey as well. So I think that's been the hope for this project. But beyond our project, you know, there's still, I think, so much work to do. And climate change really needs all of us to create a, a frozen planet effect. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I love that you're approaching it from this place of wanting to raise awareness and then also like having these different things that people can do and maybe for some people it's just discovering um about the issue and then for others um it's acting or sharing uh, so I, I think that's uh, that's really powerful um and that's actually a nice segue into uh, my next question so you um you mentioned climate change quite a lot and i think it's really uh, interesting in especially looking at what's happening in polar region is that we obviously climate change is impacting these regions a lot but then it's also very much connected with biodiversity loss right and so um i, I wonder what how how you make sense of that and if there's anything you wanted to say on that i was listening recently actually to uh, this podcast i shouldn't shout out other podcasts on a podcast <laughs> <laughs> go for it <laughs> There's a really good podcast called Optimism and Outrage. Um, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christiana Figueres is one of the hosts on. So for anyone that isn't familiar with uh, Christiana, she was executive secretary on the UN Framework Convention of Climate Change, and she played a really pivotal role in the Paris Agreement. They had a guest on, Dr. Sanyan, who's the chief executive officer of Conservation International. And they were talking about exactly this, about climate change and um, the biodiversity crisis. And kind of, you know, it's really interesting how how they're often talked about separately. And I know on the podcast previously, you've mentioned that in terms of, you know, you've got COP27 on climate change recently, you've had COP15 on um, biodiversity, why they're kind of seen as two separate things when they're very much interconnected and part of the same thing. And I don't know, I think my thoughts on that, I've got a few thoughts on that. So I think they're both such big subject areas with complexities that do need like their individual kind of recognition in terms of tackling the problems. Um, But equally, I think they do need to be talked about more together. Mm -hmm. So hopefully a good example of that, that um, it it helps me wrap my head around it a little bit, um, is to talk about a film that we made for the Frontline Voices editorial pillar of Our Frozen Planet. It's a collaboration with a nonprofit called Oceans North and a production company based in um, Canada called Bill Films. And it's a story of Western Hudson Bay, which is just at the south of the Arctic Circle. So this is a place that at this moment in time is considered to be really biodiverse. It's really healthy. 
is where belugas migrate every summer when the sea ice melts. Um, I think a third of the world population of beluga migrate there, which is amazing. But, you know, it's it's also got this rich biodiversity of um, land animals, um, grizzly bears, polar bears, black bears, arctic foxes, loads of bird species. So it's considered healthy. And the, the story was about how scientists and indigenous communities are coming together to essentially try and encourage protection in that area. So to have it recognized as a marine protected area, which would mean it was legally protected um, as a healthy space. And I think what's really interesting about this, about Western Hudson Bay is, um, again, it's looking at the indigenous um the indigenous relationship to this place. So there's a an archaeological heritage site called Hubbard Point. And over time, um, Inuit communities have um, kind of had that space as a place that's really helped them to survive, to hunt. Like there's evidence there of meat caches where Inuit communities would store meat, but also, yeah, just really cool kind of like evidence of the camps that they had. And and it's it's just re- it's like a window into the past, I guess. And I think that why that's exciting for now is that when you look at all the bones that have been left behind there, it essentially allows us to have what scientists will call a baseline of the health of that environment in the past, right? So scientists can look at the evidence and know that this has been a really healthy part of our planet for generations back. And also when you look at it today, it's also really healthy, right? So you've got two moments in time where you can say, right, this is a healthy part of our planet. And I think why that's interesting in terms of climate change is that going forwards, if we can have these measurements, it means that, you know, the scientists and people working in the space can measure the effects of climate change as they happen so that we can hopefully understand how quickly things are changing, but also, you know, pivot and adapt and hopefully find, find solutions to, to combat that as well. So, yeah, that I think that shows that inter- interconnectedness, right, because you've got a really biodiverse space that's thriving, it's healthy, but climate change is obviously going to come and shift that balance. So the two are so interconnected, but it is really interesting that people continue to talk about them separately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's super interesting. I had no idea. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna look into it because it, yeah, it sounds like a, an amazing uh, place and an amazing story. Yeah, it's def- definitely worth a watch. You can find that within the campaign. So yeah, it's uh-huh, a amazing, thought provoking story. I think. <laughs> Great. Thank you for sharing. And so an- another question I wanted to ask, which I, I think I ask um, all all people uh, on this podcast is, um, and also one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast um, initially, is um, looking at what people can do in their everyday lives specifically to help protect nature and biodiversity. I wonder if you have any tips and maybe three things people can start doing today? I think before I give my answer, I'd love to say like, you know, I think we we can all make change on an individual level. And I think that's really important. But I think it's also important to recognize the need for systemic change and kind of bigger picture change. And I think if both of those things happened in tandem, you know, there'd be some exciting positivity, hopefully, to combat the effects of climate change. But I think, you know, working as a storyteller in this space, what I'd love to see is the narrative move forwards. And I think it's starting to, but I think for the past few years, especially, and I'm probably more tuned into it because of um, what we saw around Blue Planet 2 and with our Blue Planet is, I think the narrative needs to shift from plastics being the answer. So it's amazing that people are, you know, no longer using plastic straws people are taking reusable cups people are not using plastic bags as much that's all amazing and really valuable but it's also kind of 
this was one of my other big takeaways from working around Blue Planet too. You know, plastics aren't even tip of the iceberg when you look at the problems facing our ocean. And I think if we need kind of people to realize that and to kind of move on from, oh, I'm doing my bit because I'm not using straws. Like we need people to do more. And so based on that thought, got my three things, I guess, would be number one, think local. So this was inspired by an interview that I was lucky to conduct recently with Isaias Hernandez, who people might know um, as queer brown vegan on social, really inspiring environmental educator. And he was talking about his work with local people. And, you know, it's things like thinking locally about what food can you eat locally? Like I'm lucky I live in Bristol and it's quite a, a forward thinking green city. There's lots of local, really amazing food options. You know, you can get locally grown vegetables delivered and things like that. So, you know, what food could you eat that's local? Um, thinking about travel, like could you explore more locally than flying to the other side of the world? Like it obviously it depends where you live, but that was actually one of the positives for me about the pandemic. It encouraged me to travel even more locally as well and just to see what's on my doorstep a little bit more and then also you know if you're really inspired to go and do something it's thinking locally about what are people doing in your community you know is there a local rewilding project that you could join or a local community garden or are there people cleaning local rivers or parks like uh there was a I can't remember the name of it now but I know there was like a a running group initiative where people went and ran together but also picked up plastics while they were out running things like that you know can make a difference so you know what can you do at a grassroots level would be my first one. Second one I kind of take an inspiration from Sir David Attenborough who I'm sure most people will be familiar with this as well but he recently has talked a lot about not wasting so I've written the quote down he said don't waste electric don't waste paper don't waste food live the way you want to live but just don't waste look after the natural world and the animals in it and the plants too this is their planet as well as ours don't waste them and I think that's really poignant right because we live in a world that is just this you know it's driven by consumerism and well in in the parts of the world that we live in it's very much driven by consumerism and I actually, this is at the forefront of my mind because I was lucky to go and film in Amsterdam this week with some really inspiring people who are part of something called Repair Cafes. So this was an idea that started over 10 years ago in Amsterdam by a really inspiring journalist called Martine Postma. And she came up with this idea of encouraging communities to come together to fix things. So whether that's, you know, kitchen appliances like kettles, or it might be hoovers, or it might be your phone or your laptop. So it's this really amazing story of people coming together to fix rather than, you know, throwaway culture, not just buying and throwing away, but actually kind of nurturing what you have and um, and fixing it. And I think what I loved the most about going and, and filming this week was the fixing side of it's amazing. But what's really heartwarming about that story is that it's a story of people coming together. It's giving people a space to come together to drive change. And the cafe that we visited was mostly made up of kind of older gentlemen um, who were just really caring and lovely. But it gave, it, you know, they've all developed friendships out of it and they all come together to fix. So yeah, there's this also really young, inspiring uh, model and filmmaker called Anna Mariah, who was like mid-20s. And what was lovely is, she was learning from the old gentlemen that were there fixing things, but they were also learning from her. And I just think it's a really lovely example of communities being able to come together to do something positive for our planet that doesn't cost loads of money. And it comes back to what Sir David said, you know, not wasting things. And I think that can be true of lots of 
things in terms of how we consume, you know, like fashion and clothing. There's some really great kind of forward thinking ways of kind of still feeling like you're being fashionable and getting you clothes, things, you know, platforms like Depop and Vinted, but also secondhand clothes shops. Like there's just so many ways that we can think about how we consume, but, you know, and still feel like we can look good, for example, with clothing, but do it in a way that's less impactful on the planet. So yeah, waste, I think is a really big one. And then my third one actually kind of speaks to a few things I've spoken about while we've been chatting is about sharing knowledge with people in your circles. So like I said um, at the beginning, I think if more people cared, more change would be possible. And I think the challenge is that for people that kind of are connected to the issues of climate change and the biodiversity crisis, you know, it can feel hard sometimes to talk to the people in our lives who aren't connected. And that's certainly something I experienced with my family who are just kind of not, I like to play devil's advocate with them and kind of ask them their thoughts on climate change. But also I think it can feel really challenging to, to have the tools and the language to talk about it. But I do genuinely think if we could all do something, it would be maybe just sharing some knowledge with people we know, or perhaps, yeah, just playing devil's advocate and, um, and encouraging more people to connect. Mm -hmm. Wow, love that. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's super, um, yeah, so much practical information. So um, to summarize, think local, don't waste and uh, share knowledge and, and start conversations. Yeah, Amazing. said much more succinctly than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love, I, I was going to say, I wanted to kind of um, <laughs> summarize, but I also love uh, the detail you went into. And I think it's um, amazing. And I, my brain is going like, tick, 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 like so many things I want to, you know, like write down for myself as well as action points. And like, um, yeah, all, all such good points. So thank you amazing. so much for sharing that. I, no worries. I mean, generally from yesterday, I felt so inspired and I felt exactly the same. It made me feel like, oh, I need to go back home and like think about what other things I can do. Like, look at these amazing people doing this amazing work. Like, how else can I do something? And mm -hmm. I think that's really lovely, Rex. It shows it's infectious that if other people are positive and hopeful, then, you know, I think we can all take something away from that and kind of share that with the people around us too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying um, at the beginning as well um, of your answer about how we need systemic change, but then we also need to have, because uh, it's also, I'm, I'm always caught in between like, oh, it's, you know, the system needs to change, but then what impact am I going to have as an individual? But then if I don't do anything, then, and, you know, everyone thinks the same, then the system is not going to change. So I love that it's kind of going full circle. Um, and that's, you know, if everyone does this, they're a little bit, then ultimately the system will change. And that's really, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, for sure. It's so complex, but um, yeah, that's definitely something that inspires me to think about my my own personal impact. Mm -hmm. Love that. Um, and so actually, nice. Um, your last point, I think, is a nice segue into my next question, which is if there's one thing people should take away uh, from this episode and tell all their friends, what should it be? So I think um, it is a it's a tough question, but I'll give a little <laughs> bit of thought. So I think, you know, if there's one thing people could take away from this episode, you know, based on my experience, um, I think we all have the power to create change. I think the word activist has become a little bit divisive and a little bit politically loaded, but I think we should all be activists. And I don't necessarily mean 
the stereotypical depiction of what an activist is often portrayed as in mainstream media, right? So the Greta movement, climate marches, things like that, which are so valuable and important. But I think for some people, they can be a little bit of a switch off. They can feel like extreme actions or they just can't relate to them. So for me, activism means really being in tune with the reality of, you know, what our planet needs and then doing whatever you can, whatever that is. Um, but also not putting the pressure on ourselves to be like the perfect activist. I think a lot of people working in the space, I include myself in that, can feel the pressure of being almost like, you know, the perfect activist. And I think that's an impossible goal because we can't all be the perfect person not impacting on our planet because of the world we live in, the infrastructure that's there. But we can all play our part, right? So I think we can each take little steps because they all do add up. And then I think beyond our own actions, um, and I'm speaking here from a place of privilege as a white woman living in the UK, but I think we can all be allies. I think we can be there for communities who are experiencing climate injustice, for you know individuals and communities who often don't feel they're included in this space and who often aren't given a platform in the space. I think we can all help to change that because I think if we all build communities if we can come together to support and inspire one another then change is possible and I really believe in that mm -hmm. amazing thank you so much for sharing that and then something else I wanted to ask is um and it's on a I think um on a more personal note um it's and it's also something I ask uh, pretty much everyone um I interview the climate crisis and a constant stream of bad news we're being exposed to can be quite heavy to deal with um and so I wonder how how you manage to stay positive and where do you find hope it's a really good question and actually it does connect to my work because I mean I'm lucky that I get to meet so many amazing inspiring people that are doing positive things so my answer is I guess I find hope in people with this accelerating change editorial that's this final kind of storyline through our, our frozen planet I've been meeting some incredible people over the past few weeks I mentioned the repair cafe movement really inspiring we were also lucky just before Christmas to interview a really inspiring lady called Phoebe Hansen so she's a COO of a nonprofit called Force of Nature established by Clover Hogan who's like a young Australian activist and honestly we were just so blown away by what they're doing so they're kind of acknowledging that climate anxiety is it obviously is a, a huge thing but that people aren't often given the tools um to deal with that so they're very much kind of looking at ways of encouraging people to think about taking that energy that exists in climate anxiety but channeling it into optimism and hope um so i think there's you know really important work there in terms of mental health and how we all feel, how we all share, how we all support each other. But also, you know, like talking to, I mentioned, Isaias Hernandez, who's doing incredible work on social media with reaching people with um, important stories in connection to climate change. Like, again, it's social media has that role, I think, to kind of encourage people to find ways to connect with other people as well about some of these bigger issues. And then you look at the projects on the ground. I interviewed an incredibly inspiring um, regenerative ocean farmer earlier this week called Bren Smith. And he's a co-founder of a nonprofit called Greenwave who are based in Connecticut. And, you know, you look at regenerative farming as a model. It's not only rebuilding the ocean um, in terms of the habitat, but it's also looking to rethink 
how we look at the economy. So it's a way of farming that supports nature, but it also supports us too. And you look at the potential to kind of build jobs in that space and for us to progress as well as allow nature to heal. I think that's also really inspiring. And then I'll just finish by saying that there's also an amazing project we're looking to, we just started developing a, fi- a film idea with um, based in New Zealand. I sadly haven't learned to pronounce it yet, but I will share it with you so you can include it in the description. But it's a nature conservancy project and it's essentially the story of how all these amazing NGOs have come together with um, local indigenous communities and local councils to have almost like an umbrella organization for all the work that they're doing. And it's all about our connection to nature. So it might be restoration projects, like they're rewilding parts of it's the top of the South Island, or, you know, they are encouraging biodiversity to thrive in certain parts of New Zealand. And then there's other kind of parts that are about mitigation of floods and things like that. But what's amazing, again, is I keep coming back to this word community, right? It's about people coming together to drive change and solutions, but I think support people in the process. And I think that's probably my biggest source of hope is like seeing people doing this positive action and supporting people in the process that just, yeah, makes me kind of... um be able to cope with some of the more challenging kind of bad news that you mentioned. But I also think it's important to recognize that it's okay to feel, it's okay to feel stressed and anxious about climate change. That's completely natural. It's just then finding the counter to that to help to move forwards. But um, it's, I, I think that's what really struck me about the interview with Phoebe. She said it's a healthy response to feel this way. And of course it is, but nobody really talks about it or acknowledges it. Sometimes it feels we just get the doom and gloom headlines. So, you know, hopefully projects like Our Blue Planet and other amazing people out there doing this work, if we can continue to push that idea of positivity and change, then hopefully we can all find ways to counterbalance the negativity. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love your answer because I feel like what you said is there is hope. And then you gave like all these different um, examples of of uh, where the hope is. And I think um, it's just a case of, um, and, and I think you're right in saying as well, it's important to acknowledge um, all these reactions that we're feeling that are completely natural and normal, but then also knowing where to look for uh, hope. And, and if you look for it, you're going to find it. And that's um, super important as well, right? Yeah, we need more good news stories. Do you know, mm-hmm. I think what was really interesting to me last year, there was a news story about one of the founders of Patagonia donating their money towards, I'm pretty sure it's towards some kind of climate change project. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the detail, but what I do remember is that a lot of people in my circles, again, the people that aren't in the environmental space that were talking to me about plastics after Blue Planet 2, so many of those people shared that story. And Mm -hmm. again, it said to me, people do care. Like, and if there's positivity, if there's good news stories, like people want that. And that, I think that shows that there is definitely hope. Mm -hmm. 100% love that. Um, and so my final question is actually um, asking for two recommendations. The first one, who do you think I should interview next on this podcast? And then uh, what's the best book you ever read and why? I mean, you could take any of the people I've mentioned in this podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, you already <laughs> gave me a lot of ideas. 
They're all amazing. Uh, but I will pick one person that I haven't mentioned, um, and that's someone called Nikki Hawkins. So Nikki is a communication strategist. She works with a nonprofit called On Road Media. I believe they're relaunching as um, Heard, probably have relaunched as Heard when this podcast comes out. Um, but Nikki's work is all about evidence-based framing and how the way we communicate can kind of really influence popular culture. And I could honestly listen to her talk for hours. So we collaborated with her when I worked at Freeborn Impact, um, a Bristol-based production company, we collaborated on a project called See Our Future. And it was with Attitude magazine. It was, um, the idea was to reach LGBTQ plus audiences with a story about ocean health. Um, we were lucky to collaborate with some amazing talent on that. We had Bimini from RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, Dan O'Neill, who's a young wildlife, uh, up and coming wildlife presenter, uh, Jasmine Koreshi, who's a young wildlife filmmaker, and Noga Levy Rappaport, who's a really inspiring activist. And um, collaborating with OnRoad really allowed us to think about how we told that story. So as an example, um, based on the kind of studies that Nikki's been part of in the past, it's looking at when you think about our ocean, it is full of all this kind of complicated language when you think about the problems. So, you know, um, coral bleaching, dead zones, overfishing, illegal fishing, acidification. There's just, there's a lot of complexity. And I think sometimes the language can create a barrier. So the the work that OnRoad recommend is thinking about and comparing our ocean to our bodies and our health. Because, you know, we can all understand that if one part of our body is injured, the rest might struggle and it's all an interconnected system which is exactly what our ocean is right so it's just thinking kind of about how we frame our stories and that can be the difference between kind of getting somebody's attention or losing somebody's interest and I think she's got really she's got so many interesting thoughts on that across like ocean health but also climate change um, and a variety of kind of big issues so she's a very interesting person to to talk to. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I love that. Um, and I, I love what you said, especially about thinking about the ocean um, as your body. I think that's such a such a visual and, and kind of tangible uh, way of thinking about it. I heard, I, I remember hearing somewhere as well, um, I think it was Lily Ko on, uh, on, I think it was the Just Beings uh, podcast. She said, uh, which I thought was also really interesting. She said, it was more about nature in general, the planet, but she was saying how we should think of it as Mother Nature uh, or Mother Earth has um, a fever. And so we should care for her the same way we would care for a loved one who, you know, is unwell and has a fever. And so I think that's um, it's so interesting making these links and kind of, um, yeah, again, I think then just finding ways for, for people to really understand what's happening and, and engage with the with the issues. Yeah, it's a brilliant example of framing for sure. Mm -hmm. And that's why I actually try and say our ocean, our planet, rather than the planet or the ocean, because it's mm -hmm. that idea of ownership, like mm -hmm. it's, it is ours. And mm -hmm. it goes back to what Sir David said, you know, like we share this place with animals. It's it's home for all of us. So we should all, we all have our part in it. Um, but yeah, it's just so fascinating from a storytelling perspective that even the words we use and the way we position mm -hmm. things could make could make a difference so yeah highly recommend speaking to Nikki for sure <laughs> I'll look into it thank you so much um and then what's the best book you ever read and why 
Oh, I could, again, I struggle to answer <laughs> this, but I picked one that does relate to the environment and it's The Outlaw Ocean by Ian Abina. I think he pronounces his surname. So he's an investigative reporter who's written for the New York Times and The Atlantic. And it's really a book about all the unseen issues that our ocean faces. Um, and it's really eye-opening. Like, honestly, it's it's chapter by chapter it's looking at all these different problems that we don't see and um i think that's the challenge with ocean, the ocean right in our ocean because it is this vast space that isn't governed by any one country and actually there's no there's no rule there's no laws and that's why it's so hard to kind of police and manage and um find ways to kind of challenge some of the problems that it's facing but yeah it's a really eye-opening book and I, I heard a rumor that it's being made into a documentary so it's uh it's always better to read the book before watching the <laughs> so that's why I recommend it <laughs> sounds good thank you um and for everyone listening I will include uh, the links to um the book and everything else that was mentioned in the show notes amazing thank you so much Nicola I think that's the end <laughs> I mean I, as we were saying before we started recording I think we could go on for hours but <laughs> Let's, let's stop here for today. Uh, thank you so, so much for everything you shared. It was super interesting. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, we can talk for hours offline if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Have a lovely rest of your day. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you, listeners. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to share this episode with a few friends or family members if you enjoyed it. And also check out hashtag OurFrozenPlanet on Instagram, YouTube and TikTok. I'll also include links to all of Nicola's recommendations and everything she mentioned in the show notes. So make sure to check that out as well. Thank you so, so much in advance and see you next week. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love.